But I think what that that mindset fails to to provide is the perspective of like thinking before doing is usually the most important thing in creating your space. Like asking yourself, why did those things end up on the checklist? What is the most important thing on the checklist? Am I even doing the work that I want to be doing right now? Is this giving me energy? We were never taught to take time and space to think about any of those things. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Tim O'Brien, storytelling is the essential human activity. My guest today, Alex Lieberman, has excelled at bringing storytelling to the business world. He's the co-founder and CEO of Morning Brew, a daily email newsletter that condenses business news into content that appeals to a younger audience. Lieberman started Morning Brew as a college student in 2015, grew it to over 3 million subscribers, and sold a majority stake to Business Insider. He's also the host of the popular podcast, Founders Journal. Alex, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I've heard you talk before about how it was a childhood dream to work at Morgan Stanley. Usually it's like baseball player, astronaut, you know, so architect. astronaut yeah, it's a very specific childhood dream. So I heard you came from a family of traders, I guess. So how yep. did, was, was there family at Morgan Stanley? How'd you pick that one? And how did that finance sort of desire yeah. develop early on? Yeah. So, you know, the way that I think about it is there were a few values that my family instilled in me at a very young age. One of them was the importance that all of us would place on family, like family is the number one thing. And I feel like throughout life, your aperture just continues to open up, right? You continue to be aware of more and more things. And at a young age, I didn't have a very wide aperture because I lit most of my life had been lived actually through my parents' experiences, through what they were telling me. Only as you continue to live life, does your aperture open up because you experience life for yourself. I, I just had a vision of you in like first grade dress up career day, showing up in the suit with a, uh, you know, Gordon Gecko, whatever you're, you're, else. You're, is the, you're yeah. not far off. You're <laughs> not far off. My, uh, my parents like to dress me up in uh, pretty ridiculous stuff growing up. I'm pretty sure my first day, of a new school I went to, they dressed me up in a sweater vest. Um, <laughs> what they, they dressed me up for Halloween. My dad was like very into dressing me up as the things that he wanted <laughs> wanted yeah. me, to, me to be versus what I wanted to be. So I was dressed as uh, Groucho Marx one year. I was dressed That's as a uh, Blue Man Group, uh, Einstein, not the typical uh, <laughs> Halloween costumes for kids. But anyway, I was, you know, family was everything to me. My family all worked in the same industry in financial services. My dad was a trader for Citigroup. My mom was a salesperson for Nomura. My grandpa was in fixed income for Prudential. So it's like, again, at that point in time when my aperture was small, I didn't know anything else existed. So how'd you, how'd you pick Morgan Stanley? I didn't actually pick Morgan Stanley. Oh, okay. <laughs> my, my dream was to be a trader. Got it. And so I was like, that's what my dad does. That's what I have to do. I want to be the best trainer in the world. And that's what I had written on my whiteboard growing up. Morgan Stanley came later uh, once I started having internships in college. But honestly, I didn't even know the firms. I was just like, I need to do exactly what my family is doing because they're my superheroes. I want to be like my superheroes. And it was there wasn't more, much more thought to that because I didn't know what I didn't know about what I could do that actually may have been more fulfilling to me. 
I, my dad was a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I interned at a law, two law firms in college and I absolutely hated it. So yeah, yeah makes sense. <laughs> That's what you do. So were you into business in high school? What did you study? What did you focus on uh, before you went to Michigan? Yeah. So high school was, um, it was a very interesting time for me. I was, I found actually high school to be kind of challenging. Um, in a lot of ways, I found it challenging academically because I w- always was a very specific type of worker. I'm a very distracted person. Like I, th- I've, I've talked about this on my podcast before, but like the way that I operate, my brain works in sprints where I'm really effective for like 20 minutes or 25 minutes. And then I yeah. need a break and a recharge, then another 25. And I think the high school format in general, isn't really conducive to that way of thinking or working because my typical high school day was a 35 minute drive to high school because I went to a school, um, you know, 10 towns over yeah. and, uh, we get to school at like eight 30 would wake up at six 45. We'd get home from school at like seven. And so like, I didn't have the luxury of choice to be able to spread my work out over many hours to be conducive to the way that I thought and the way that I approached work. And so basically I found it very difficult to work within the strengths, the constraints of a high school schedule. I also was the youngest person in my grade or one of the youngest. I went to the small private school, 120 people in my graduating class. And most people redid a year when they went to our school. And so I was one of the youngest. And I think what that meant for me is developmentally, I found it to be pretty difficult. Like I was at a school where it felt like everyone was the person who got a 2300 on their SAT, you know, got a full ride scholarship to an Ivy league school to play a sport and was like the most social person on planet earth. And, and so as someone who is young, underdeveloped, still trying to find themselves, I found it to be particularly challenging on the flip side. Like the positive of that was, I think I was pushed more in high school than in any kind of other part of my life. I found high school to be far more challenging than college, actually. So from an academic and an athletic perspective, high school was amazing. In terms of the stuff that like in high school, you really didn't have a focus. But you know what I remember being kind of my favorite classes were stats and econ, which again, I find interesting because also I consider myself to be more of a creative person. And so I would actually if I had to guess, there probably actually were creative classes I took in school, like yeah. photography, that if I'd given myself the opportunity to enjoy them, I could have actually enjoyed them better because I think that's my natural way of thinking and the things that naturally give me energy. Yeah. It sounds like a it, like a, a high achieving high school. I mean, I just watched the the varsity blues <laughs> yeah like this is it's not a great environment that we've created you know making everyone think that getting into college is the be all and end all in life a hundred percent yeah all right so you went to school uh did you ma- major in business so um the way it works in michigan is there's two ways you can get into the business school you can be right. a pre-admit I wasn't good enough in high school grade-wise to become a pre-admit. So the other way is you apply during your freshman year. If you get in, you're in the business school from sophomore year to uh, senior year. So went into college with no major. I was just in like the the School of Literature Arts and the Sciences. And you have to take the prerequisite classes to be able to apply to the business school. I think there were calculus, stats, econ, and a few others. Um ended up getting into the business school. And so then sophomore year to senior year, I I majored in business administration, 
<laughs> focuses or concentrations was a very loose term in school. Like some yeah. schools, you have to take a, exact classes to have a concentration. For us, it was just, you say what your concentration is. Yeah. <laughs> so my concentration was uh, like real estate and financial markets because those were where I took most of my elective classes. And yeah, I majored in business. I still still on the banking track at that point. Still on the the sales and trading track. Yeah. So I interned after freshman year, sophomore year, junior year in financial services. Uh, freshman year was for a financial services startup called um, Bonds.com. Sophomore year was for Morgan Stanley and their wealth management practice, and then. Junior year was for Morgan Stanley in like their it, on the main sales and trading uh, floor in uh, Times Square where their their main building was, and yeah, I like I was full steam ahead. Planet like for me peak. So that you got that that I mean that was the vision. So did did you like it? Did you like that internship or did it? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, memory is um is a really funny thing because it's like, did I like it? Well, my memory is I liked it. Is it possible that I liked it because I had told myself for the prior 18 years of my life that I had to like it? That's also possible. Yeah. Um, so did I like it? Well, I liked it enough or I convinced myself that I liked it enough to not re-recruit for anything senior year and take a full-time job in sales and trading after school. You know, if I'm being honest, I don't think I knew what I liked. <laughs> I, I think... I still want, I'm trying to figure out what yeah. I'm going to be when I grow up. And, but I, what I did like about it was I liked that I was surrounded by really smart people. I think the way it typically works is industries that industries that pay probably too much <laughs> for their workers generally attract high IQ individuals. Yeah. And the, the reason I create that distinction is I found that people were really smart. The people on my desk uh, that I worked with immediately were really good people. But in general, I think also when you get into industries where you have really smart people, I was talking about this with someone recently, just even in the startup space, EQ, <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes IQ and EQ are inversely correlated. And so like worked with a real, lot of really smart people, but a lot of like really just not good people, not well-valued people. Um, and to be totally honest with you, I've found some of that in in the startup space also with both investors and with founders. Luckily, I found some amazing people, like really big hearts that love to learn that are also super accomplished. But I have found that in kind of these industries that offer outsized returns to people, IQ and EQ tend to be inversely correlated and you tend to find a concentration of those people in industries like financial services or entrepreneurship. So you're on this path, but then you started this newsletter. What was the, what was the genesis and what year did it actually get started? Yeah. So after my junior year internship with Morgan Stanley, uh, was lucky enough. I got a job offer, accepted that job offer. I didn't even think twice about it. I just accepted it and went back to Michigan and I didn't have to re-recruit for a job. I only had to take three classes my whole senior year. So I had all of this free time. Great. And it was basically like, what can I do to keep myself sharp so that when I graduate from college, like my brain is situated in a way that I can actually do my job well. And so I started helping students prepare for job interviews because a lot of students did re-recruit their senior year for other jobs. And in those like prep conversations, I would usually do mock interviews with students and I would ask students, you know, 
how do you keep up with the business world? That was always the question I would ask. And their answer would always be something to the effect of, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I would say, why? They would say, uh, because my parents told me that I have to, and because it's a prerequisite to Sam well read in business. And then they would go on about like, but it's dense, it's dry, I can't get through the whole journal cover to cover. And at some point I was like, this is crazy. These kids are working their asses off to have careers in business, yet they don't have content that gets them excited about a career where they're going to spend 50% of their waking hours in that industry. It sounds wild that they don't have content that gets them excited about that. And so I started writing a daily business roundup at the time called Market Corner. I would spend four hours a day just like perusing, like basically reading the internet the primary business news sources. So Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Reuters, Financial Times, The the Economist, et cetera. And it would take what I thought were the most important stories in the business world for the college business student. I would curate them and then rewrite them in 50 to 150 word blurbs. And then I would add kind of like this, let's call it like, business complimentary stuff for the reader. So like- would, would you link to the original posts? Is it, was it more of a synopsis of it or was it you were just re-reporting whatever the news was? It, it was a re-reporting for you to know like really the bare bones of what happened and right. why, right? And no, there wasn't a clickable link because it wasn't even in email format at the time. It was in a PDF. I literally would write this in a Microsoft Word template, then convert it to a a PDF and then attach the PDF to an email that I would send out to a listserv. The listserv was marketcorner at umich.edu. The first one went out to like 35 or 40 people. The people I was prepping for job interviews, the people I lived with on campus, a few people in my family. And then it just grew little by little, brick by brick. And the, the reason I felt so much excitement about this is interesting, there's appetite for it is because it was impossible to sign up and it wasn't that great of a product. There was no website. You had to email me or text me to say, hey, can you add me to your listserv? So if people are willing to go through that many hoops. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you would go through that many hoops, like, and there's so much business news already out there, clearly it's satisfying something that current business news doesn't serve. And so it grew little by little. At some point, I sent out an email when I was feeling really encouraged about it saying, Hey, if you're a reader and you want to help me grow this thing, create more content, take it to the next level, reach out to me. And I got an email from this guy, Austin Reef. He was one of the people that emailed me. And he said, Hey, I have ideas for how Market Corner could be better. Still have the, the email thread saved uh, on my desktop. And, um, and I said, okay, sounds good. Let's meet up in the Winter Garden, which is the name of the, the main lobby in the business school at Michigan. And I said, uh, let's meet up in the Winter Garden and we'll talk about it to see if you know, it's, it's to see if you're willing to give the time commitment that, that this needs, which is ironic in retrospect, given it's my co-founder. And now Austin, you know, I've recently moved into the executive chairman role. Austin is the CEO of Morning Brew now. And like, it's just funny at the time that I phrased it as, let's see if you, you're willing to give the yeah. commitment to this. But the reason that I ended up partnering up with him at the time, not really as like a co-founder. Yes, he had the name co-founder, but we weren't thinking about it as a business. This was just like a fun side gig. The reason I even wanted to bring him on for whatever this was, was he was a very different type of thinker than I was. Like I, I described my way of thinking to you a few minutes ago. I'm a creative. I think of a lot of ideas. Like my default brain is always to like, what are new and interesting things we can do for the user? How do we market it? How do we scale the audience? You're, you're, you're a tinkerer. You're always yeah. messing yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. And Austin is very much like 
he he's more of like a finance thinker. He's an analytic. He is a linear thinker. Uh, he is an operational mind. And so to me, it was really cool having someone around me that said stuff in such a like direct and focused way. Like he was born as like the racehorse with the blinders. I yeah. need to create context in my life to have the blinders. Yeah. And so it was really cool to have someone complimentary like that with me. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. You know, there was one thing you said before it occurred to me, tied to our earlier conversation too, that that you, know, you talk about going to the high school where you're in all these classes and AP and high achievement, you know, going to Michigan, and then you only have three classes senior year, right? And then, and with that space, you look around, think about what you like, solve a problem. Like, you know, some people would say, and I was even going to joke, oh, well, how do your parents feel about paying $6,000 for three classes? But, but that space is actually what created the room to, to think. Totally. So the way that we're you know, the educator just stacking people so busy and so overwhelmed, you end up on that track that you were saying before, because you don't have any time to step off the track and even look at it. And and I just, yeah, it seems like, I don't know, that was an interesting lesson in there. I think also school incentivizes you because of the stack of work to do, like yeah. to constantly do, like do, 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 like check this thing, this assignment off, then write this essay with a four-day deadline. And I think it actually creates a really bad habit of like what, what it means to be productive. Right. I think we are all programmed to be obsessed with checklists and feeling really good about ourselves when we check things off a checklist. 100%. But I think what that 
that mindset fails to to provide is the perspective of like thinking before doing is usually the most important thing in creating your space. Like asking yourself, why did those things end up on the checklist? What is the most important thing on the checklist? Am I even doing the work that I want to be doing right now? Is this giving me energy? We were never taught to take time and space to think about any of those things. Yeah. When you're studying, I mean, they said, you know, the the notion of a shower idea or like, this is all because you're not using your active brain. I have had tons of breakthroughs when I'm traveling, when I'm somewhere else where I'm just out of the routine. And yeah, I just, uh, it's interesting that, you know, I think sometimes that stuff is seen as soft, but people need the, the space. Exactly. And, and I think that's why it's even really important for businesses to somehow craft a culture of giving people permission to stop and just like, you know, take walking meetings or walk around or just like do things that put you into a form of autopilot that actually allow you to get your best thoughts because you don't constantly have to be in this like, you know, chugging along, like literally in the forest where you can't see the trees type of way of working. No, it's interesting. So, all right, well, fast back forward. So you get this started, you meet Alex, like what, Austin. What was, oh, Austin, sorry. You I'll get there, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> what what was the uh what was the tipping point, the sort of Malcolm Gladwell tipping point that when it really started to go and you knew like what was the thing you did where it caught fire? Yeah, I think the two that stand out to me was the first time that I saw someone reading Morning Brew who wasn't in my immediate circle. So <laughs> being on a subway in New York, going to work and seeing a random person in a suit, sitting down, scrolling through the brew. That was a pretty amazing point in time. It was a a time that told me that people actually read this that aren't my grandma or someone who knows my grandma. Yeah. The second time was when we completed this circle that was like, you know, basically the circle of life that we focused on for the first three years of the business around just our newsletter, where we said, okay, we have this newsletter. It's nice, but how do we make it an actual business? Well, there are three steps that really define any media company, but let's focus on it with our newsletter. Step one is create great content, like the best content um, for our specific audience, right? So create the best daily business read for the modern business leader, bar none. Feel great that we've do- we're doing that. Step two, acquire modern business leaders who can now read the content we've created for them. And step three, monetize that audience, which in our case was through advertising. So convince some of the biggest brands in the world, maybe not the biggest brands in the world, just brands who have marketing dollars, why they should pay us to get in front of the modern business leader. And it was in 2018 to 2019 that we completed that three-step cycle. And what completing that three-step cycle did is it not only proved to us that we had a business, but it also allowed us to reinvest in our business. Because then by securing advertising deals, we finally were actually driving revenue that we could reinvest into the business. We reinvested in two ways, either by hiring more people to be tasked to different parts of this cycle or by spending on paid marketing. And by spending on paid marketing, we accelerated Morning Brew's size in a year faster than we could have done it in you know, five years if we didn't have that circle spinning. So we went from 100,000 readers to a million readers in 12 months by having this content growth sales and then reinvest into paid marketing cycle going for that year. But I've heard you say that you, I think you thought you benefited 
uh, you know, if you had raised $10 million, you probably would have spent a lot of it in, in the wrong areas that you yeah. benefited by having constraints earlier on and just having to be creative and getting the word out there and figuring out how to get this on other campuses and how to do that without a lot of money. I actually think create constraints drive creativity. It's easy to spend a ton of money, right? Yep. I think they're just totally different skills, right? So I think by being constrained, it forced us to figure out how can we grow without just pouring money into it. So I think it forced us to have discipline. Had you had the money at the time, would you have spent it on the right thing? No, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have known how to spend it. Yeah, and right. so I think that's a totally different skill in itself, which is yeah. a valuable skill, but you need kind of both of them. You need the right. skill set of being prudent with your money and being creative when your back's against the wall. And then you need the skill of once you're doing well, once there is a fair bit of money, how do you allocate it in the right way? How do you how do you place bets in the right way? How do you move capital in the right way right. to give yourself the best chance of long-term success? I assume early on, everyone who worked, when was it a business? Was everyone working for free for you <laughs> for the first year or two? So we were a business starting in 2017. Okay. Um, so 2015 to 2017, we were <laughs> we were not a business. We were, it was a side project that, you know, starting in in June of 2015, I was at Morgan Stanley. I was doing this on the side. Austin was still a student because he's two years younger than me. Oh, wait. So you went, you went, you actually went and took the job. Yeah. I took the job after graduating. I was there for, I graduated from Michigan, June of 2015. I went to Morgan Stanley for training July of 2015. I left Morgan Stanley September of 2016. So just over a year later. And basically what happened is when I joined Morgan Stanley, I was no longer allowed to be involved in the writing of the newsletter because I was at a financial services firm and they thought it would be a conflict of interest. Austin couldn't write it because he was a full-time student. So then what ended up happening was we had an editor who was still a student at Michigan who had this nice balance of being in the business school, but was a writer for the, the school newspaper. We ended up recruiting somewhere between six and 10 college students to write the newsletter. People who wrote it for free wanted to just get their writing in front of five to 10,000 people. You gave them attribution credit. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the editor who I just mentioned kind of like oversaw their writing schedule. And it was basically that. It was like a, a college student written product from 2015 to basically back end of 2016, we made our first hire at the end of 2016, which was a writer. And that's when like the business actually started. That's when we raised a small round of capital from friends and family. That's when we made our first hire. That's when I went full-time. Austin went full-time in uh, June of 2017. So it's like end of 2016, beginning of 2017 is it went, where it went from side project and like nice audience project to an actual business. And, and what was the decision to leave work? Was it a chicken and egg? Like it was getting so big that you needed to, or you just decided it wasn't going to get big if you didn't? Yeah, I think it was a combination of a few things. I think one, I felt like I was diluting my abilities. I felt like I was doing a, a B minus job at work and a B minus job at Morning Brew because I was doing two things and it was impossible to work hard enough at either of them to be really good. So I knew there was going to be a natural fork in the road. Morning Brew was giving me a ton more energy, yeah. despite only you know spending my last few hours of the day on it each day. I knew that I would way more regret 
not doing morning brew and seeing someone else go and build it because they just were willing to put in the time, that scenario looked way worse to me than me yeah. going and doing morning brew and it failing. And then there was also the kind of the perspective that like my dad passed away a uh, week before junior year of college suddenly. And I think there was an aspect where I was like, kind of scared shitless to be doing the same job that he was doing for 20 years. Like I was trading mortgages. He had traded mortgages for 20 years. And I was like, is this literally going to be groundhog day? And then I think there was a second part of it where it was just like kind of a switch went off in my head, which was like, I could literally drop dead at any moment. Doesn't matter what health I have, like stuff happens in life. I watched it before my eyes. I can't allow any sort of like concern around uncertainty um, stop me from doing something that I'm really passionate about. I need to enjoy the work that I'm doing. And at the time I was also like, now there's no breadwinner in the family. I kind of assumed some level of obligation, whether that it was rightfully so or not. I assumed some level of obligation to care for my family in some way. And to me, being an entrepreneur could offer an outsized return to literally take care of my family for the rest of, of my life in a way that being a trader at Morgan Stanley, while lucrative, could not. It's funny because I would actually assume that the the society or conventional wisdom would have told you the other thing, which is, you know, given that this happened, stay in a stable job, do that, don't 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 take that risk. You're crazy. Like it all nine. I think nine out of ten people would probably give you the opposite. But the entrepreneur would tell you that. But nine yeah. out of ten people would be like, don't give up the stable job. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you that that would be the conventional wisdom. Um, yeah, I just wanted to I wanted to enjoy what I was doing. I just wanted to enjoy the work that I was doing. And at the same time, I had kind of a naive confidence that there was something to this thing um, that could become big. One, one of the ways I know that you, you scaled it, I know we're jumping around chronologically a little bit, but I think this is important for companies, again, who just... Uh, in some ways, they're a little handcuffed by the money these days. It's like, oh, well, if I got to do it quickly and fast, I go to Facebook. But Facebook's costs are up 30, per, average price of an ad is up 30% in the last year. Yep. So <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to make money. So you, you guys built this ambassador program that really, I think, got it moving in the early days. Can you walk through sort of how you came up with the idea for that? I know, I know the term is around, but this, I think this really worked for you and is super cost effective. Yeah. So... Basically, it was just an evolution where at first we were like, how do we grow this thing when it was just Austin and I? The way we always prioritize is what we said, what is the warmest audience who already is going to know about Morning Brew or who is best positioned to sign up for it? And where's their density of that audience? Like we thought about things in terms of like hub and spoke, right? So like, yeah. how can we get in front of the hub who has access to all of these spokes? Like an example of a hub and spoke would be like social media. Social media hypothetically can get you in front of, you know, 3 billion devices. The feasible thing at the time was us going to clubs and classes on Michigan's campus that were business related and going in front of the class, pitching morning brew for a few minutes, passing around a sheet of paper, getting students to write down their email on a sheet of paper, and then us manually plugging in their emails. And so Austin and I started doing that. One, I think it just gave us a pretty good crash course in effective selling and storytelling. It also forced us to be a little bit uncomfortable by having to convince teachers why we should have two minutes of their classes time to sell something to students, but it was really effective. Uh, we got a couple thousand students on Michigan's campus signed up by doing this. We basically cleared out just like all of the business classes, 
all of the business clubs, and then anything tangentially related like econ, poli sci, et cetera. So we did this. And then Austin and I were like, okay, now what? We were like, well, we have Michigan covered. What about all the other schools? We were like, what about the other Big Ten schools? Like who's going to do Michigan State, Ohio State, Penn State, et cetera? We're like, okay, we need to find the Austin and Alex at those schools. So then we used our email list, emailed like in our newsletter saying, hey, if you want to be an ambassador for Morning Brew, hit us up. People reached out to us. We made them ambassadors. Literally gave them the exact playbook we did at Michigan where we gave them templates. And they weren't paid, right? No, they were paid in <laughs> they were paid in uh, love and swag. Yeah. And and I think again, it's one of those things where it's like the early days of the startup, like your first thousand to ten thousand customers just want to be a part of it. They yeah. really just want to be a part of the journey. We actually tested at one point paying ambassadors and it didn't do as well. They they preferred the sweatshirt. Yeah, <laughs> actually, like it, it made things more transactional. And yeah. When things became transactional, no longer was fun for them. It was a job. And at the time, they could see it wasn't like you were making a lot of money or we had all these advertisers. Yeah, so it was a movement. Yeah, yeah, and and so then we convinced students at other schools to do this. That was doing well. It would bring in like I don't know, five thousand to ten thousand readers a semester. And then Austin and I were like, okay, we've done some schools. What about other people? Like, what about anyone who wants to share the brew with people, not just like a dedicated ambassador program that we're putting our time into? That's what led us to a just general referral program. And the way we started with our referral program is there was like an out-of-the-box solution called Kickoff Labs that we had built. We basically moved our website to there and it allowed you to have it where anytime someone signed up for the newsletter by putting their email address in, they would get a unique referral link. And when they shared that link, they would get certain rewards. We quickly found that like that solution wasn't very flexible. So then we did research online. We had found that uh, the kind of whole playbook that Harry's Razors had used at launch when they were building their referral program because they had a really successful referral program to build up a massive waiting list for Harry's when it launched. Yeah, We ended up going on Upwork, finding a freelance engineer based out of Ohio saying, this Harry's Razors thing, can you do that exactly that for us? But just put like our logo on instead of Harry's. And that's what he did for $500. He built effectively like our new landing page with a database that would intake people's emails and assign everyone a referral link. And then when they referred someone, it would it would make sure it was keeping count of their number of referrals. And that was the genesis of the referral program. And I don't know the exact number today, but hundreds of thousands of people have gotten at least ref- one referral with Morning Brew, which means we've been able to spend more on paid marketing because we know that every subscriber is worth a little bit more than one subscriber because they, the odds are, you know, one out of every 10 subscribers will get at least one referral. And, that, and that's been massive for us. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. 
They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And and so how many subscribers? You're up to 3 million today? We're at 3 million today and you know around 300,000 people have gotten at least one referral. And the rewards that we're giving, like we're, you know, we're starting to change it up, but historically it's always been brew swag or access to community or access to exclusive content. Basically, we've always thought from the perspective of the people who are going to refer Morning Brew are our super fans. Those are the people who are really passionate about what Morning Brew is up to. What are yeah. the things that they would really care about getting if they refer people? And normally we say it's swag that they can show off in public to social signal, or it's more content from us because they really like our content, or it's access to other super fans like them who uh, they can be in conversation with. Like a community. Yeah. Exactly. And so some of our rewards, what it includes is like, I'll just give you a few examples. Morning Brew coffee mugs makes a ton of sense for a logo. Also makes a ton of sense because coffee mugs, one of the cheapest items uh, to manufacture. Like yeah. a coffee mug is like 10 cents. And so when we think about what is the acquisition cost to get referrals. 10 cents. Now I'm worried that I'm going to die from what's in my coffee mug if it only costs 10 cents. <laughs> Ceramic is a very, a very cheap material. And, and so you have like coffee mugs, but then you also have things like our Facebook group, which is cost zero dollars you know you could assign some yeah yeah you could assign some costs like you know the writer on our team who has to do a little bit of work each week to moderate the community but it's very low but it gives value to people to connect with other people in the morning brew community you know we recently moved away from this but for a long time it was a sunday edition of the newsletter was only open to people who got three referrals again really cheap all the only cost of that was the writer who's writing it once a week and whatever the, the cost was of sending an email. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, you, 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 you seem to lever on the people that cared what they cared about, not rewarding them with the wrong, with the wrong incentive. Um, yeah. And being yeah. just smart about basically what is the best bang for our buck with rewards bang, meaning the highest impact on yeah. our best readers but at the lo- the most efficient cost from an acquisition cost perspective. But you said something too, I think that's really important around not making it transactional. So John Rulin, who's been on the podcast, good friend of mine, like the guru of, of gifting uh, and all things gifting. He, he says like, if someone sends you like a $100,000 referral, don't necessarily send them something right away. And then a couple months later, send them a nice, thank you, a bottle of wine or this, or like, thanks for having us on your mind, because then it's just a nice thing that you're thanking that, you know, you should always send a thank you note, but the gift is sort of a nice thing for thinking of us. Be, otherwise it could be, oh, I sent these guys hundred thousand dollars lead. And they sent me a $50 bottle of wine, cheap, uh, you know, that's yeah, right. yeah, so, yeah. It becomes <laughs> yeah. a reference point And right. then someone thinks about that reference point. Right. Um, rather than, oh, they just did a nice thing. So he always talks about always thanking people for referrals, but staggering the, the sort of reward so that it, it's not transactional so that you're again, for the reason that you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's, um, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right analogy, but it's very, uh, prescient given, uh, I have a, uh, a puppy. It's like <laughs> puppies have really short memories. If you validate them with like a treat, right. <laughs> uh, they associate it with whatever they've just done. But if you give them a treat, like two minutes later, they're just getting a treat. Yeah. It's, then you're just friendly. Nice yeah. yeah nice thing, it yeah. seems like the, the exact same thing. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. 
Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet. No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. So so you obviously had huge success with this. um, And then you and Austin made a decision to sell a majority stake to Business Insider. Was that difficult decision? Easy decision? How how do you know? All the people listening, how do you know when it's time? Yeah, it's... um... So first of all, yes, it was a difficult decision. Um, were you looking or did they just come to you? No, we were not looking. Um, we had been in touch with folks from Business Insider for a, a few years prior to even being in like a deal conversation. And we had been approached about deals a number of times, but never was like the partner, the context, the number. Never was it interesting enough for us to sell because our whole thing was like, our whole ethos was like, why would we sell? You know, we're we're living the dream right now. Everything we want to accomplish in our careers, we have it right now. You know, building something that helps people, working with really smart people, having access to business leaders we shouldn't have access to, not worrying about money, controlling our own destiny. Like we had all of those things. And so we weren't actively looking because those are the things we want in our career. Why would we look for something different? We ended up being approached by Insider and, you know, we were really excited by what they had built. We were really excited by kind of like the complementary nature of their business. Um, we were excited by also just like the the financial aspect of it. Well, you had said before that that was why you did this, right? To try to have that security for your family and yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, the two big reasons that I think that we did this were one, Morning Brew has just like evolved so quickly. And as we are making this transition from like newsletter company to media brand to consumer brand, there are so many more moving parts. And to have a partner that has both resources and knowledge to help that seemed like a really good, a really good thing to have in your corner, almost like a really good insurance policy for having all these blind spots because we had never built a media business before. So that was the biggest thing. The other big thing was having a partner who would let us build without getting in the way. That was really important to us. And that was something that we made clear and they made clear very early on. And then the third piece was like, it was, it was a life-changing amount of money that from my perspective, one like goes back to kind of what I was telling you before about my own personal desires, but also just in terms of optionality in life, you know, to be in such a privileged and fortunate spot um, to have some level of financial freedom at 27 years old, my, my view was like, it would give so much more optionality for the next however many years of my career. So that's a good segue. I mean, you mentioned your step into the sort of chairman role, um, obviously still involved, but what you built an incredible foundation. You you can now do whatever you want at, at 27. So do, do you have a sense for what that next big no goal idea. is or what the next mountain is at all? No, no idea. And, and that kind of, it's, um, it's like, it's strange. It's definitely anxiety provoking one, because it's weird to not be 
intimately involved in the day-to-day of morning brew every day. Like that's weird for me after doing that for six years. Like so much of my identity was tied up in morning brew. And so I think even now, even though I'm still obviously very involved in the brew and, and, and doing things uh, from like creating my own podcast and being now almost like a personality within the business, helping with business development on the advertising sales side, helping with things related to culture, it's in a different way. So I think it is strange to kind of just come to terms and become comfortable with like my identity just shifting in this moment. And at the same time, there's, I think the, the anxiety of at whatever point in the future, whatever it is, three, five, 10 years, I'm no longer involved in morning brew. I think there's also just this anxiety that I'll always have about one, how do I make it? So I haven't peaked in life. Yeah, it's, it's, that, that is a very common concern. I've seen people make so much money and be so successful, and then they're so worried about not measuring up to their own yeah. level yeah. of success. Yeah. yeah, so there's one, it's like, how am I not a one-trick pony? Two, how am I going to find something that I'm as passionate about again, right? Like most people, I, I haven't realized it, or I'm starting to realize it, but like most people work to live like they enjoy their job enough to support their passions. to support their yeah, passions yeah. morning brew has been my passion and that's such a again like such a privileged um, and amazing thing and so it is a very strange concept to me to think about beyond morning brew what is my passion going to be like what am i going to get super amped up about and i don't know the answer to that the way that i try to answered is one by not putting so much pressure on myself and saying to myself, you know, you're in a really fortunate position where actually like your passion doesn't have to be tied to income if it doesn't want to be like your passion could be golf if that's like what you're really passionate about. Um, But also like I, I, what I do know is I love learning. I love learning new things. And so where I always go is rather than forcing myself to have a passion, let me just be a voracious consumer of content, online, in book form, in podcast form, let me just learn. And by kind of like expanding my surface area of learning. So I'm like spending time learning about a bunch of different topics right now from angel investing to Ethereum, to decentralized finance, the future of education, maybe something will stick. And if something doesn't stick, that's okay. I've learned something really interesting. It's it sounds like it's your senior year again at Michigan, right? Where, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you need that space to. I mean, you made the conscious decision to step back, right? And so I think yep. that, that creating that space is what's going to help you figure that out. Look, it, it, people always talk about. I, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs and friends and whatever sold their business. Like it, it, it seems to the rest of the world like it's this beautiful, amazing yep. blessing, and a lot of them are pretty sad and unhappy years later they haven't figured out what's next no one wants to hear about that problem but it is it is real there's there's a real identity tied up into that that it is not it's a hard transition yeah and i i think broadly just like mental health and well-being and mindfulness in general in like the startup space i think we're at a point now where people understand it's important Like, I think it used to be people didn't even have an awareness around its importance. I think today it's been talked about enough that it's like a little cliche to mention it because people understand its importance. But I think there's a difference between people understanding its importance and like practicing it. Yeah. And I don't think that transition's been made yet. Like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and founders understand the importance of finding purpose, finding out what gives you energy, being mindful, having an awareness about yourself and, and what's around you, but don't actually practice it. They just get that it's important. 
That, that is progress, though. I, I do think totally. we made huge progress. Like 10 years ago, you had Marissa Meyer and these CEOs bragging about four hours of sleep and 130 hour work week. And at least we've come to that's not being celebrated you yep. know, anymore. And you have a lot more CEOs talking about sleep and health. And I mean, I I literally remember, you know, her, her, you know, bragging about that. And obviously the performance of the company was not that great. <laughs> yeah, totally. Given that. Um, so I agree. We're getting, we're getting there. I, um, at least it's not, oh, I worked 140 hours this week. Oh, I worked 150 hours this week. Yeah, totally. It is progress for sure. So, uh, yeah, senior year part two, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll figure it out. So, uh, last question. Um, yeah. what's a mistake you made either personally or professionally that you learned the most from, and this can be singular or for a lot of people, it's a repeated recurring, recurring one. I think it's, it is a mistake that I continue to make, but it's a really hard mistake to work yourself out of. So I'm trying to, I think that I still do too much measuring my happiness based off of validation from others. I think, you know, we all as people live on some spectrum, right? I don't think any person operates where they are completely isolated from what people think and say, not impacting their emotion, their emotional state at all. But I think people live on a spectrum. And I think, unfortunately, maybe it's because I, you know, from building a media company, I've spent a ton of time on social media. Social media is really bad for this. <laughs> if I talk to my therapist about it, maybe one could argue because I didn't get <laughs> enough validation from people in middle school and high school. Now I'm looking for it in my later years, whatever it is. I still think yeah. that I, there is work for me to do in finding fulfillment based on things I do intrinsically, like finding fulfillment based on the thing I learned, finding fulfillment based on a challenge that I solved within the business, not finding fulfillment because I hit 75,000 followers on Twitter. And I think that is, I have not made that full transition yet. It is something I have an awareness around. It is something I'm working on, but I think it is something that is really difficult, especially in the age of your attention being grabbed and manipulated by social platforms. Yeah, I actually wrote about this a few weeks ago. I said the the modern thing is, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and you don't have a picture of it, like, did it actually fall, right? So the the ability to walk down a beach and just enjoy a sunset and yep. not have the inclination to be, I should take a picture of this. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, getting to a place where you enjoy the sunset for the sunset and for your experience with it, and not because. Joe Schmo from college gets to see you with the sunset in the background is an incredibly important distinction. I think is really difficult to find, but is so important for our well-being. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, speaking of college, I've, I've noticed you know these college reveals things now are just you know that are staged for Instagram and elaborate with thousands of dollars of merchandise. Again, it's just it is all for extrinsic validation. Uh, it, it's not, we know it's not healthy, but we have a really hard time breaking out of it. Totally. I totally agree. Uh, great. So Alex, where can people uh, find out more about you, uh, Morning Brew and podcast? Yeah. Well, I would just say if, if you resonate with any of the things I talked about today, I talk about all of that and a lot more um, on my podcast, Founders Journal. It's uh, eight to 15 minute episodes, three days a week, where I just talk about my journey of building businesses and learning about business. And then on Twitter, if you're a Twitter person, uh, I'm at Business Barista. Uh, so would love for you to follow me there. 
I love how you, I, I, it's not lost on me that those podcast episodes are within the window that you said you could focus, <laughs> the amount of minutes that you said you could focus. Yep, for sure. All right, Alex, thank you uh, for sharing your story with us. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing journey. And I know it's, uh, it's not over yet. Thanks so much for having me. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Alex and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Huge favor to ask. If you enjoyed today's episode or you've been listening to the Elevate podcast in general, I really appreciate it. You could leave us a review. Helps new users discover the show. Uh, uh, if you're in uh, Apple, all you got to do is scroll down to my library and click on uh, Elevate and then ratings or review. So thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.